the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. If you were to ask me, Stan, do good people go to heaven? My answer to you would be yes. Just as well as I would answer the question, if you said, does bad people go to heaven? I would say yes. Because whether you're good or bad doesn't determine whether or not you go to heaven. What determines whether or not you go to heaven is if you trust Christ as your personal Savior. Now let me qualify something else. And that is, while we're going to talk a lot about going to heaven as a place, and it is a place, it's not going to be a cloud halo, it's not going to be wings and a harp and all of that, it is a literal place that the Lord has for those who believe. It's still not all about the place of heaven, it's about the person of heaven. And so the good news is, while I'll go to the place of heaven when I die, I can have an eternal relationship with the person of heaven right now. So while I'll say a lot about heaven, I want you to know that it's really all about the person of Christ that we want to have that relationship with forever. And then we end up in heaven, and there's a whole lot of other stuff going on up there as well. So three reasons why good people really won't get to heaven if they're trusted in their good works. First of all, because... You can never be good enough to go to heaven. If you're trying to be good, okay, you want to be good, all right, how good do you really have to be? Well, a little bit later on today, we're going to learn that you have to be 100% perfect, and we'll never be perfect. But let's dive right into Romans chapter 10, and just look at the first verse. This is so cool. This is a sermon in itself, probably two sermons. Paul begins writing, and he says this, Brethren, my heart's desire, so it tells you about an inner passion, and my prayer which really tells me he had a genuine heart's desire because out of that desire, he then prayed. Now, who did he pray to? He prayed to God. Who did he pray for? For them. Who's the them? The them would be the fellow Jewish people that he's already been talking about through all of um, Romans, particularly the Jewish people that were in the church who were born-again Jewish people, but then extending that to the Jewish people that were out there ethnically. So he is talking about that. So you have to read the whole context. Go back, listen to the past messages. You can get them on our website. So he's praying to God for them. But what did he pray about? That they get a job, get healthy? What were they praying about? He prayed for their salvation. Would you underline that? Their salvation. So he had this passion in his heart. And out of that passion in the heart, the thing that he did is he began to pray for them. Now that's coming after another chapter that he said, I would even be willing, essentially, to go to hell for these people, that I wouldn't even have salvation. I would transfer my salvation for their salvation, and now he's praying for them. Now, a little side note on this. Do you know that if you have unsaved people in your family, obviously you want to kind of clean up your act a little bit so you're not really uh, dissing Christianity and dissing Christ and dissing all there is about Christ. But at the same time, if you want to begin to penetrate your family and friends, the best way you can do that is to bathe them in prayer. And that starts with a real heart's desire that you want them to be saved. So I guess I'm going to ask that penetrating question. And that is, do you really care about someone going to heaven or to hell? I mean, do you really care about your family? Do you care enough to change your life as a Christian? Do you care enough to pray for them? Do you pray 
care enough to be around them, to engage them in that message? Is there anyone who's done, so, done you so wrong, so bad, that now you don't care enough about them going to heaven? I pray that wouldn't be the case. You say, oh, you don't know how hard it is. You know, they did this. They cheated me out of that. They leave me out of all these family. Let me tell you something. Listen carefully. Paul is saying, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that Israel or my brethren would be saved. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, these are the very guys that chased me all around, so to speak, Europe and the Middle East there at that time, trying to kill me. I mean, I had to flee for my life. In fact, they grabbed me a few times and they whipped me and they threw me on a, on a garbage dump thinking that I was dead. So they kicked me out of the city and let me die over there. But I didn't. I kind of popped right back up again and went back into the city and preached. Those are the same people. Talk about being, these did a lot worse to me than leaving me out of a party. They're not inviting me to something. These are the ones that are actually, actually trying to kill me, and I still wanted them to know Christ as Savior. Now, that's the prayer that we want to have. Now, a little bit further, because my point is still, how good do you have to be? It's good enough? Is that going to get you to heaven? You can never be good enough. Look at the Jews for a moment, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit more in another point, but just so you get why this is in this point is this. The Jews really, really followed after God in a big way, in a major way. Look at all the laws they had. Look at all the, the, the commandments and the statutes and the principles. Go to Psalm 119. It'll give you the whole list. All of that stuff is in there, and they were really hungering after God. In fact, even Paul, who was um, after Christians, did it because he had a love for God. So there was no one had a greater zeal for them. And so you would think if anybody could make it upstairs to heaven, it's got to be the Jewish people. And yet Paul was smart enough to know that with all of that religious stuff, and it's still connected to God, and they still look for a Messiah, they still needed salvation. Now, here's what I don't have time to unpack, and maybe we can do this at a follow-up time. When you see the word salvation in Scripture, it doesn't always mean salvation from hell. Salvation is just a general word. Often the context has to tell you what that is talking about. Partly it is talking about salvation from hell, Sometimes it's salvation in a physical way, a social way, etc. You'll notice many times in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, they cried unto God, they confessed unto God for salvation because they were so judged and oppressed by their enemies. And when they repented and they came to the Lord like that, God did then save them. So there is spiritual salvation as well as, I guess, physical or ethnic salvation as well. Well, now I have to ask the question. Some of you might say, well, what about all those Muslims out there? What about the Hindus, the Buddhists, those that follow Confucius or maybe follow the Baha'i faith? I, I get all of that. These are people that they have their own religion and they're happy with their religion. Just because they have their own religion and they're satisfied with it and it kind of gives them all the feel-good times, is that going to get them to heaven? Uh, no, it, it's really not. You'll see that in a moment. And what about those people that have no religions, no cults, no nothing? They have no belief system. And by the way, I think everybody has a belief system. It's what they do with that belief system. Even a non-belief system is a belief system of non-belief. Did you all catch that? Did it go by you too fast? All right. So they have a belief system. But so let's say they don't have a religious belief system and they're happy with that. What about that? It really doesn't matter because it still boils down to there's only one way to heaven it's through Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is being broadcast, and you're listening to this, and for those that are on the outside, you think, boy, what a bigot is Stan Pons. He believes that it's just Christ. Well, if I am a bigot, I'm in a good place, because Jesus said, I am, here it is, the way, the truth, the life. And if that wasn't enough, he said, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so I'm kind of connected to the right, I don't want to say bigot, 
but to the right truth teller, the truth, Jesus Christ. And I hope that might work for you because it certainly does for me. Well, let me give you five implications of what I'm trying to say here. Can I do that? The first one is this. We must acknowledge the prevailing view that all religions are essentially the same. Now, you can take that to the bank. I don't care what it is. You name it. You think about it. Write it in your margin. What is the first religion that comes to your mind? Put it in the margin of your notes. Whatever that might be, they all essentially, they believe that you get to heaven the same way. Now you might say, no, they don't. Here, this one believes you got to be water baptized. This one here says you got to pray to Mary or whatever. And you go through all of these. And here's what I'd like to say. This is the, this is the bottom line. Listen carefully now. All the religions are the same, no matter what they are, whether they're current religions, past religions that are now starting to come back to life again, or someone's underneath the palm tree or on top of a mountain and creating a new religion right now. Here's what they all have in common. All of them are the same. And that is this. Whatever they are going to do to get to nirvana, the happy hunting ground, whether it's uh, some enlightenment stage, whatever it might be for them, a better afterlife, however many times they've got to go through all of that, it's born on one truth, and that is this. They have to do good works to get it done. Did you catch that? There's an amount of good works that's involved. So as you read through the material, what you're looking for is anything that they do, whether it's religious or social, of good works that they have to do to go to heaven. That's why they're all the same. Now, let me qualify that. You'll notice in your notes, I put the word religion there so you would understand that a little bit, religious. Religion comes from two Latin words. Re means to go back. Ligio is the word bind. We get our word ligament. Our, the ligament binds our bones together, etc. So we have bind back, religio. Religion is what man creates, man's trying to do, to bind himself back up to some kind of a higher being or a higher place than for where they are right now. So religions are man-made, something we do to get connected. Christianity is not a religion. Put that in your notes. Christianity is not a religion because religions are man-made binding themselves back up to God. Christianity is where God says, you are lost. I'm going to come down to you. I'm going to give you eternal life by paying for your sins. All you have to do is place your faith in me, which would not be of works. Are you following that? If you are, say, "Uh uh-huh. All right. Now, I'm going to say this now, but when I get to Romans 11, I'm really going to unpack this. You have those that say, okay, it's by grace, and then you have those that say it's by works. That would be the religion, Christianity. Religion says keep doing, Christianity says it's done. Okay, you got that. But then you have somewhere in between that they want to start bringing Christ into this because they want to keep him happy through this. So they'll say, okay, God says a lot about good deeds. You have the Sermon on the Mount and a whole lot of other stuff in the Bible. So they misinterpret all of that, and they now add works to grace. And so now you have works to Christ. And now you have a problem there. Romans 11 says it's either by works or it's by grace, but it can't be by both. And we already know it's not by works and it is by grace and grace alone. So it's not by anything we do. That's why you have to understand all religions, the same thing. When you're dealing with them, find that little root that talks about good works and immediately you can come up against that with Christianity, that it is by grace and grace alone. If you agree with that, would you say amen? All right, now keep that in mind because that is really critical. Now let me say another thing about that. I've given you the idea the same is all going to be works. Let me talk about the different paths that people have to go to heaven. I talked about this last week. You'll remember my illustration with that. Let me give you some statistics that I got just since last week. Uh, Newsweek uh, in their, on their Internet said this, 8 in 10 Americans, and this is really weird, including 68% of evangelicals, believe that more than one faith can be a path to salvation. 
Barna says 64% of Americans agreed with the following statement. See if you agree with this. Do you agree with this? Quote, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and others all pray to the same God, even though they use different names for God. Do you agree with that? I don't. But I can't tell you. I wish I had a dime for every time someone, in when I'm engaged in a conversation about this, that they would tell me that it doesn't matter what you believe, whatever you call God, it all works. Now, let me tell you what's happened. We who believe Scripture believe in what we will refer to as absolute truth. The truth is absolute. Yeah, it's in a box. Yes, there's some black and white. We got all of that. That's absolute truth. But we have now set aside absolute truth. Humanity has. Even American, quote, Christianity has. Religiosity, etc., Protestantism. They've set aside absolute truth because that has become so tight, so... um. Oh, how can I say, marginalizing other religions. That's just so close-minded. I used the word bigot a moment ago. So we need to be a little bit more open-minded. We have to understand God loves everybody. So we move from an absolute truth, sliding through moral relativism, and now that is crashing now down into the pool, which is called universalism, which means whatever feels good, whatever you think is right, it is right for you, and therefore I need to tolerate you and let you believe whatever you want because it works for you. As long as it works for you, then it's going to be fine and we'll all be happy ever after. The problem is it doesn't really work that way, and that's why Christians really have the most challenges because we're saying we do not believe in universalism. We don't believe in moral relativism. We do believe the Bible is absolute. And all of a sudden, how can you do that? And so the bastions of hell through people and new laws come against us all the time. That's a great problem that we have, and it'll always be there. But never forget, Jesus still said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that's why in Scripture it says, we who live godly in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution. I met with a gentleman recently, last two or three weeks ago, uh, he said, Stan, um, he's a wedding planner. He said, uh, Stan, um, <clears throat> do, you, uh, do you ever do same-sex marriages? And I said, no, I, I, I really don't. You know, I'll do Christians. I may even do two unsafe people. I won't marry uh, a Christian and a non-Christian together. I think Scripture clearly says I shouldn't do that. I won't marry someone if we're jumping out of the airplane and saying our vows before we hit the ground. I won't do weird stuff like that. I do believe in the sanctity of marriage. But I also won't do same-sex and he says, well, I'll, I do that. I, I, I think it's okay. You won't do that. And, I, and he, said, he said, I'm a Christian and I'll do that. And I said, I, I really can't do that. And he says, well, if I didn't do that, I might lose my business. And you know what? They're going to have laws. They're going to come against you and shut your church down and all of that or whatever. I said, you know what? Lovingly, with a smile on my face, I'm going to say, bring it on. I think the problem with Christianity today is that we do not see the value. Ooh, this is hard. The value of persecution. You know, we really kind of stay away from that. And that's when the church thrives. That's when we have our deeper intimacy with the Lord and we're going through it. Just, you've been there, some of you. But we always want to shy away from it in or under the banner of love everybody. Well, I love that five-year-old. That's such a cute five-year-old. He's having so much fun and he's so quiet and he's all by himself, not hurting anybody. Yeah, sure, he's on the railroad track, and there's a speeding freight train coming right at him. But oh, I love him so much. Look at the fun he's having. And I don't want him to get mad at me. I, he'll, he won't think I love him if I get him off that track. Are you catching the irony of any of this? All right. And within Christianity, there's a time. I'm not going to say I'm going to run over the kid, grab him, throw him up against the wall. I'm not going to scream in his ear and belittle him for playing on the track. But I am going to do what I can to help him 
get to a place of safety. And I hope you and I would be on the same page with that. So that's important for us to remember. Let me use another phrase for you. It might help you. Remember, there's only one way to heaven. Go back to that statement I made about absolute truth and uh, moral relativism down to universalism, with that in mind. Most of us can define these three terms, probably the first two. The third one is newer to us, but once I define it, you'll be there. You're there now, I think. The first one is the word atheist. The word ah means without. Theist comes from theo. We're going to say without God, or we could say no God, N-O God. The next word is the word agnostic. Agnostic means I cannot K-N-O-W, God. I cannot know God. I don't know these things. I can't know these things. Agnostic would mean without knowledge, all right? But the new word, and I believe it's a word that uh, defines more of what we're experiencing today than we've ever had in America's history, and that is it's called ignostic. And ignostic says a little bit more than no God or I can't know God. It's I can't understand any of this stuff. It's not like I just don't know. You can't know. I just don't understand any of this. Now, let me show you how that plays out in life. Again, I'm older. I grew up in uh, America, not the Bible Belt or the Buckle and all of that, but around America enough that when um, you talked about Jesus Christ, everybody knew about Christ. My parents never went to church. I was never raised in church, never once went to, never had a Bible, never said grace, never nothing. My family was a good moral family, but nowhere near Christianity yet. I knew about Jesus. I knew about the manger scene and Christmas and yada, yada, yada. You talk to more and more people, the second, third, and fourth generations, that have so far moved away from Christianity and so denigrated Christianity that they now either uh, they do not permit their kids to be exposed to that. They're taking it out of the schools. They're taking it out of our language. They misrepresent anything about Christianity on television, nearly everything about it if it's not Christian biblical-based. All right, And so now these generations are, are reared in that, and now they grow up. They marry people of the same mindset, leave everybody alone. They procreate their own kids, and they grow up, and now we're down to the second, third, fourth generation. They have no idea. When you say, um, do you want to be saved? They think it's from a wreck burning building or a fire, okay? They, they have no idea what that means. So they are so far without knowledge about God or I can't know anything. They know nothing of this stuff. Now stay with me. We, culturally speaking, are more apt to that because we li- live in a Polynesian, Asian type culture. And Polynesian, Jesus Christ is not at the center of that. I'm not talking about the Christian Polynesians. I'm talking about just... The, the man and the, the boy, the woman and the girl that's just out there that is immersed in that cultural mindset. It's going to be animism. It's going to be polytheism. It's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that they've created around themselves. And if they're not exposed to biblical Christianity, they're not going to understand this stuff. And when you begin to talk to them about anyone, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who, huh, who, you know, they don't understand. You bring in the Asian culture and you... You, you, and they are immersed in their culture of understanding of enlightenment and going to the next stage of enlightenment and all that other kind of stuff that goes with it, they'll have less and less understanding of where we are. So that's why it is important for us to understand something. So I want to give you the next implication so I can get us done on time here. And this is very important. The next implication is this, and that is that we who believe the Bible must equip ourselves in Bible doctrine. Knowing that they have another mindset in what they believe that they do not understand anything about Christianity, that we have to go back to square one. 
We have to start them out right at the very beginning. This is what Christianity is all about. Now, you're hearing this and you're yawning because I know this, I know this, I know this. But I don't want you to know it. I want you to, watch this, I want you to own this, own this, own this. I want you to own it so much that you see the value of sound doctrine. Well, let me explain why sound doctrine is important in this whole mix of will good people go to heaven. All right, you come alongside these people here. And they have such a non-understanding about who God is. I mean, they don't know anything about that. They're that agnostic kind of person. Now, if you don't have sound doctrine, you may have doctrine, but it's not sound. In the Scripture, the word sound in English is sound, but in the Greek, it's the word healthy. In other words, it's so healthy that you can take a sick person and give them health from that doctrine. So that's healthy doctrine. If you don't know healthy doctrine, then here's the potential. The potential is for Satan to to use you by taking mixed up doctrine that isn't accurate and now unloading that on people who do not know about God. And so now they don't have an accurate view of doctrine. They don't have an accurate view of God. And so they're just as mixed up, maybe not, maybe more mixed up than they were before because you've added more stuff on top of them that is not biblically based. So it's important for you to know sound doctrine. But you now start really pumping sound doctrine of people from the pulpit you'll empty churches faster than you can shake a stick at because they want feel-good stuff. They want to have all the, the song and dance and all that goes with it and all the emotion, which is not wrong. I do believe that there's emotional part of it. We are emotional human beings. But it has to be built upon sound doctrine. Um, I am a little different. When I, um, when I took over a church and um, accepted the call to the church in upstate New York, the first thing I did was put together a ministry training institute and the first class I taught wasn't personal evangelism, wasn't discipleship, wasn't the spiritual walk. It was all about sound doctrine. So we went over, I wrote 10 doctrinal things. When I was in San Antonio, I grabbed our guys, invited them out to a breakfast at a little restaurant on Friday mornings of all mornings, and we went through this material on the foundations for the Christian faith. Did that there. Then when I went to uh, Georgia... I asked the guys, would you like to come and study doctor? We had 22 guys that met with me for three hours on a Monday night to study doctrine. When I came here, we started our lifeguard class over there in naval housing, and the group brought it over here, taught a bunch of stuff, and then we said, okay, we're ready now. Let's go through the foundations for the Christian faith to learn that because I want our people to know sound doctrine. That's essential. But now, watch this very carefully. When you have the sound doctrine, you might know what you believe, but you may not know why you believe it and that you can trust it, which brings me now to the third implication. And the third implication deals with apologetics. So let me say again that we're going to have to study apologetics. Now, for some of you that are hearing that, you're hearing the term apologetics. Does that mean as a Christian I learn how to apologize for my faith? The answer is yes, because the operative term is what does the word apologize or apologetics mean? Well, one means to say, I'm so sorry, I believe what I believe. That's not what we're talking about. Apologetics means that you can state clearly and correctly a rational understanding for the Christian faith to those who do not trust the Christian faith or the Word of God, etc. So you can do it in a way that you'll set it forth. So watch, you're going to teach them what they believe and why they believe what they believe. And that is very critical for our people to know, and I really hope that they would understand why that's important. Now, it all comes back to understanding God's Word. Now, let me explain why that's important. I'm going to give you a practical, general reason, then I'm going to give you an illustration that happened last recently. I'll just, I don't want to get too close with this. Um, 
here in the pulpit, my job is to always be doctrinally sound, but practical so you can apply it. So I like to do expositional life application going through doctrine. We got all of that. But really all I'm doing is making sure you're hearing it corporately. I'm reinforcing what you believe. But you need to know it because the real job is not done necessarily in the pulpit. The real job is going to be at your Rotary Club meetings. It's going to be a backyard barbecue. It's going to be when you're at your beach with your friends. And all the folks that are around you, and they begin to start talking about all their isms and spasms and belief systems. Then you need to know why you believe what you believe. Now, when you hear that, some of you are very casual because of our culture sometimes that I don't want to engage. I don't want to you know, push myself on anybody. You always have to ask yourself, could that be coming from Satan? Because Satan obviously has no problem with you knowing what you know as long as you don't do anything with it. You ought to write that down. He wants me to know this stuff as long as I don't do anything with it or my life is so messed up that when I do something with it, they don't believe me. All that being the case. So I really want you to know that we'll teach it to you in the classes. We'll have the seminars here. We've got people in our church. Our youth have gone through over and over again apologetics so they know the soundness of the faith, etc. But at the same time, it's because we want you to engage into the faith. Now watch carefully. Apologetics often is used more as a defensive mode of evangelism. Defensive means you defend the faith. You defend the belief system. So it's defensive. Now let me give you the next implication. The next implication, number four, is we must take the time to build bridges with unbelievers. To build bridges with unbelievers. This means that we do more than just know how to defend the faith when we're under attack for it. What it does mean is that we purposely, with the knowledge that we have of the rightness of God's Word, and we know why we believe what we believe through doctrine and apologetics. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 